Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I apologize I didn't post anything today, uh, yesterday, because I was really tired. I was supposed to post a podcast on loan words from uh, Judaism into Islam and Christianity and... Um, I was not able to complete it. I was really tired. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to complete the chapter on Christianity. And we'll go from there. Um, we'll finish the chapter on Christianity, Islam. And we'll have the tr- the, the loan words taken from all three uh, groups. Uh, because it's a continuation. And so I'm going to change course a little bit. We'll start with Christianity and we'll pr- go forward. So thank you very much for joining me once again today. I'm really honored. I appreciate you coming here to this podcast from all over the world. Um, so this podcast about Christianity is really personal because I, I am an ex-Christian, so I apologize if there's any, um, loan words, if there's any, um, emotion in it, but it is my journey. And so that's why it's, uh, it took me a long time to get this down on paper. Um, so we'll start with Christianity and Jesus Christ. Jesus is the shortened name for Jesus Christ, considered the son of God by Christians. Um, a metaphor, not a real son. I read somewhere his name was the most repeated name in history and has conjured many emotions, positive and negative. The article went on to say that some people use his name as a curse word. And I stopped right there. That would be me. I used Jesus or Chris or, or Chris, French for Christ, as a curse word all the time. And I really no regrets. First of all, Jesus Christ is not his name, but more importantly, the article does not mention how the churches of the world have used this name and have been a curse on, on humans for 2,000 years. Just typical theological victimhood rhetoric. This is where I will state again in no uncertain terms. I have not, I have, I have not one single ounce of regret. However, the real name of Jesus is Hebrew or Yeshua. Uh, in, he, in Hebrew is Yeshua or Yeshua. My beef is not with you, my dear Yeshua, but to the people who have used your names, distorted and manipulated your legacy to enslave themselves to to an ideological prison to suit their economic empires. Their name, Jesus, becomes Jesus in the first century Greek, from which it was Latinized and from where the anglicized name of Jesus is derived. Christ comes up from the word Christos in Greek, meaning the anointed one. It is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mishiah, commonly spelled in English as Messiah, which also means anointed. So Christ comes from the word Christos, which means the anointed one in Greek, and in um, the Hebrew connotation, anointed one is Mashiach and English Messiah. So Christ is known as the Messiah, but Christ is a title that's put on Yeshua. It is, was not his name, and if he came back to earth today, he would not understand what Christ was. The religion of Jesus Christ is what marked my journey in life and will always influence my decisions in what remains of my time on this planet. Not always in the favor of religion, but more to tell the story and legacy of Yeshua. A story where he hopefully he will give us our transgressions in using his, his name to run narcissistic pedophile empires that have done nothing to do have nothing to do with him. I will use the word Jesus in this chapter for convenience only. Thus to tell the story of our friend Jesus and how he became one of the most influential figures of our time. 
We have to go back in history and to the context of Jesus' birth in land. In our land, we call Israel today. Back then, the area was, Rome, was ruled by the Roman Empire. The descendants of the 12, tribes of, 12 Israelite tribes were squabbling among themselves, along with the new immigrants from all over the Assyrian and Greek empires. The Israelites who remained behind belonged to different factions. The rabbis were a priestly class uh, called Kohen, who considered themselves pure. They were broadly considered to be the priestly tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron. But not all were from the same tribe. No different than just a caste of Brahmin, Hindu pundits, Christian priests, or Islamic mullahs today. They were the establishment, physically and morally controlled by the congregations of the land, with unaccountable power. That's needed to submit to them, that's one needed to submit to them in order to survive. So the priestly class uh, called Kohen, uh, who more or less belonged to um, the Levite tribes, the descendants of Aaron, and they were, um, yeah, they, they, they were the establishment of the time, and like every establishment, they didn't really do very well. So we're going to talk about four groups during the Jesus' time, very prominent groups that controlled the ideology and um, political scene. There were many other tribes too, multiple tribes, but these were the four prominent ones. So we have the Sadducees. Sadducees in Hebrew, Zedok, um, comes from the first high priest of the first temple period called Zadok, and his descendants were then called, uh, in English, Sadducees. Um, Zadducees or Sadducees, either S or Z. The prophet Ezekiel later chose the descendants of this family or the sons of Zadok as the priest to control the temple after the second temple period. So these people uh, were chosen, the descendants of, of Zadok, to be the high priest, uh, to, be, to be the priests of the temple after it was rebuilt. They were the priestly elite who formed the establishment. Although not all Sadducees were high priests, they dealt with political matters and trade too. And from this large group, you will find the people of the book because they considered themselves the only people to really um, uh, promote the books of, 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 of Moses, the Torah, and the first five books, and, and all laws came from that. They were the only ones to interpret it that book, and so uh, they were considered the people of the book. Okay, so from this large group, we get the people of the book. Very important to understand this concept because it will flow onto Islam. Um, the Pharisees were the other group in, in Hebrew called Ferushim. They are considered the spiritual fathers for modern Judaism. They were a rebellious or secular sect that defied the establishment. They commenced a little after the Maccabean revolt. They differed from the former, that is the Sadducees, as they believed that who believed that all laws originated in the written Torah given by Moses. But the latter believed, that means the Pharisees, they believed that they existed the written law of the Torah and that oral law that was passed down generation to generation. A few centuries after the destruction of the Second Temple, the oral laws were written down in the Talmud. The Pharisees um, beliefs also differed slightly compared to their rivals um, and that 
they believed in saints and martyrs um, and judgment day and resurrection of the dead. So you see, this is um, the group that believed in all of it. And this group then will, we will see later with uh, allies with the, the Christian uh with the family of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's family and his political movement then takes over the Pharisees' ideologies of martyrs, judgment day, resurrection, and the dead. So this was the Pharisees who were opposite the Sadducees. Okay? We'll have the third group called the Essence. They were non-political. They disagreed and absolutely rejected the groups above, as well as the Seleucids, Seleucids the Hasmonean elites, and the ideologues. The fourth group were the zealots or Canaim. They were a political party known as for the opposition to pagan Rome. They revolted against any person who wanted to align with the Roman Romans of the time. Religion and culture were about feudalistic control, the micro and macroeconomics of the region, where everything where everything the individual does or or every opinion he has is micromanaged by the mechanisms of the state. That is the theocratic and cultural establishment, all to feed their power-centric lust for the benefit of political alliance at the top, as well as the control of the micro and macroeconomics of the region. There was no God, just an abstract imaginary concept of blind faith that was conditioned to the locals that conditioned the locals to be adhered to. This to camouflage the Western economic interests of the micromanagers of God. They had no answers or any other way to control people. It was not the real heritage of the people, but manipulated rhetoric to suit the vested interests of the elite of its time. The elite who controlled commerce and benefited from the windfall. The very fact that they were squabbling among themselves tells you that no peace dialogue nor was any knowledge going around the ranks of the rabbis. This region was invaded from time immemorial by various empires. So the kingdom of Israel, uh, of the kingdom of King David, no longer existed at the turn of the millennium, as it was disbanded by the Babylonians. In its place was a non-Jewish territory of Samaria with Galilee to the north and the region of Judea to the south. So you had in the middle Samaria, Galilee in the north, Judea to the south. The Samaritans followed what is known today as Samaritanism, an ideology that resembles Judaism. They considered their faith as the true ideology practiced by the ancient Israelites during the time of David um, and later Babylonian, uh, dating from the time of David and the later Babylonian invasion. They call themselves the keeper of Shamarim, that is the guardians. So they were the guardians of the real um, Israelite culture, ideology, legacy from time of King David. Uh, the Samaritans believed that the region was preserved and followed by those who remained in the land of Israel after the Assyrian occupation. Contrary to Judaism, which they see as that which comes from the same source, but an amended fate bought back by those Israelites and Hebrews who returned from Babylonian slavery. Their holy mountain is Mount Gerishim. The Israelite slaves coming back from Babylon, however, did not buy the Samaritan version and was scornfully rejected. So we see the, uh, the kingdom of Israel broke into two. 
northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the Israelite establishment at the time was not very nice, and the people who re revolted against them were the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans probably opened the door to the Assyrian invasion uh, from the back, and that's the Assyrians entered and, and killed and invaded the kingdom of, of um, Babylon. Um, uh, sorry, invaded the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom broke into two. But however, the Assyrians took all the uh, Israelites as slaves, but they didn't take everyone, those who were their allies on the ground. And those people who were the allies at the time of the Assyrian invasion, allegedly, um, were the Samaritans. And they believed because they got left behind, they were the true believers of the uh, people of the book. They were the true um, interpreters of the fate uh, uh, legacy of King David and the Israelite kingdom. But uh, when the slaves, the descendants of the slaves from the, ba from the Assyrian and the Babylonian occupation came back, um, they were not buying this. And so there was a fight again all this thousand years later by the descendants of these two groups. And uh, it was not very pretty, let's just say. It's very important because from here you get um, the sad, you get the concept of the Sadducees uh, being in charge of the uh, second temple, and the, and from the Sadducees you get the people of the book, the the, the bigger version. Uh, this bigger concept of people of the book comes from this junction, um, and it is important part in history to understand the Samaritans who now become the second-class citizens and the people of the book who now sort of rule in um, allegiance with their new uh, alliance, the Persians. Sorry, yes, the Persians who were in this region at that time. So the, the eastern flank uh, of Samaria uh, and north of neighboring Galilee, you are the province of D Decapolis. Further east, you had the province of Perea, and south of Judea, bordering it, was the province of Idumea. By the time Jesus came onto the scene, the Galilee in its north had for its inhabitants people who were Hebrew only for a century. Its inhabitants were people who belonged to other tribes, religions, and denominations, whether they were Judean immigrants from down south of Israel or people transplanted from far ends of the Assyrian Empire. They were considered different and inferior to the traditional Israelite people living in the south of the Roman province of Judea. They were, they were inferior because Galilee was not, far, not just far off geographically, but different politically and ideologically. They did not show a pure form of Israelite culture and laws of Moses, like that of the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judea. An Israelite culture that influenced by foreign occupation and immigration. Thus, on the outside, the turbulence continued. Together with the territory of Sumeria, Judea, Idumea, um, formed the Roman province of Judea. Not to be mistaken with the region of Judea now. So we have the region of Judea and we have the Roman province of Judea. I know this is a little bit complicating. If you look at a map, uh, if you look at first century, go to Google, type first century Judaism, first century uh, Judea, and you will see um, a map. And you can take a look at it and understand what I am saying. 
from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, um, it mentions the population of Galilee was composed of people of Aramaic, Phoenician, Greek, um, among other people who were not of pure Hebrew, Hebrew descent, thus inferior in stature to what the Israelites considered themselves as the pure race of Hebrew people. The only point that stuck out was the fact that they were very patriotic warriors, people who fought till the end and did not give in during the battle, uh, struck to the hybrid traditions of the interpretations of what we call Judaism. Galilee was also a very fertile land, thus agriculture and fishing being the bread and butter economics um, activities making it easier for its inhabitants to earn their bread than their Judeans who lived down south in a more hilly territory. This also gave the Judeans another reason to envy and spite their northern neighbors in Galilee who spoke uh, a dialect of Aramaic which had more influence of Hellenistic um, culture than their southern cousins. So, the arrival of Jesus in, on the scene is just set in a time of upheaval. When they were not fighting, they were partaking in caravan commerce combined with agriculture and fishing wherever possible. This the only means of earning a living at this point of time. The birth of Jesus to the carpenter Joseph and his wife Mary is heralded as the coming of the Messiah in Christian mythology. It is said to have been born around 6 BCE. However, there are researchers who believe that the date is more likely to be the 1st century CE. To the Christians, he is the incarnation of God on earth, something like an avatar. To the metaphysical, a metaphysical form now recreated in physical form. Hence, it's called the Son of God or as a metaphor. Not a real son. He was born to the Virgin Mary. Uh, he was born to a virgin by name of Mary in a manger of Bethlehem, the province of Judea. His father Joseph was a carpenter who lived and worked in a small visit, village of Nazareth in Galilee. A little before Jesus was born, a decree came from the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. All subjects had to register in their ancestral homelands. Both Joseph and Mary obeyed the, the order and went to Nazareth um, in Galilee. To Beth, sorry, both Jesus and Mary obeyed the order and went from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in the Roman province of Judea. There in the manger, Jesus was born. He was supposedly visited uh, by three wise men from the east called Magi. Some say they were Persian astronomers, the Russians. Others say they were Chinese scholars. Some say they were Buddhist monks who went who, like when their leader, the Dalai Lama, dies, uh, on this nearing his end, they look for an infant who would be the next Dalai Lama. And some say wise men, some say the wise men came only two years later. Okay. When Jesus was in, an infant, somewhere just above his birth, Herod, the ruler of the Roman province of Judea, ordered the death of all boys in, in Bethlehem, below the age of two. The angel Gabriel appears to Joseph and commands him to flee to Egypt, where he grows up until Herod dies. One, once again, an angel appears to Joseph and commands Joseph to go back to Israel. 
Joseph takes his wife Mary and the newborn child and moves to Nazareth in the district of Galilee, uh, in the region of Galilee. There, the non-Judean province inhabited with Gentiles, as they are called in Christian mythology, that is, people who were not Judeans, not Judean, and who looked down by the who were looked down by the Hebrews as second-class citizens. Here, in a small town of Nazareth, Jesus grows up. He learns the Torah and and the carpenter trade from his father. In Galilee, among the population of Judean enclaves from the province of Judea, belonging to the former tribes of Israel. Beyond these enclaves were several pagan cities, as we call them today, people not belonging to the original twelve tribes of Israel. Looking back now in hindsight, it would seem that Jesus was confused by what he is seeing. Firstly, the lack of fellowship for Hebrew traditions of the Law of Moses, besides the constant squabbling and spiral of personal vendettas. Let's just say that the conflictual interpretation of laws of Moses made him question his theology, all of which got Jesus questioning the rhetoric he was fed with from childhood through the outside influences of the enclaves around him. He would have known that the people of the land were not native or were unaware of the culture and heritage of the region. Jesus would have come in contact with the Chaldeans, which was a city-state uh, which was a city-state in the southern Babylon, today modern Iraq. Arab Abraham was also born in Ur of Chaldea. Chaldeans were known as highly educated group, especially skilled in astrology and astronomy. Um, their interpretation of ancient laws and customs was stirred, uh, has stirred a debate in, of knowledge in the mind, in his mind. It would seem that he was had ventured to set the record straight by finding the lost tribes of the kingdom of Israel. So you see, Jesus was influenced by many people around him because he lived in Judea, in, uh, in Galilee. It is important to note that Hebrews of his time were concentrated centrally in, this, in, the, in the Roman province um, of Judea. Okay? Um, so they, these Hebrews were colonized, or should I say, indoctrinated only by the Israelite or the Hebrew establishment. It's very much like Pakistan today. Pakistan is an Islamic state. The only information that can get in has to do with, with Islam. They cannot be uh, granted any other knowledge. They are intellectually isolated, ideologically isolated, and given only Islam, 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 so they don't know anything. So the people in the Roman province of Judea were controlled by the Sanhedrin or the Orthodox Jews. Now, because they were con they, they were controlled by the Orthodox Jews, they were highly, as um, what we call today, supremacists, and they were only considered about um, they were considered about they only considered. Uh, Judaism or Hebrew culture, Hebrew culture, Torah, Torah. But Jesus was born, was grew up in Galilee, which was north of Judea and north of Samaria. So, if they were if they were not and they were not controlled by the the uh, Israelite establishment or the Hebrew establishment, they were only administered by the Romans. 
many people, they were influenced by many people on the ground. That means all those who passed by, because uh, Nazareth was only four kilometers from Sephoris, which was a trade town, which is a big town for trade, a Roman town, um, a metropolis, not a metropolis, but it, it was a huge area for uh, a caravan route. And people from all areas, the Chaldeans, the Phoenicians, uh, Greeks, the Romans, everyone passed by. So he was influenced by all these ideas. So one side he was brought up with the Torah, uh, saying only Hebrews are the chosen people of God. And the other side he's looking at all these people passing by and saying, well, how the hell these people are born? It's something where we asked, we told today. I grew up in a Christian community saying only Christians were going to heaven. And, and, and the rest are going to hell. And I'm, I'm with my Hindu friends, Muslim friends, Greek friends, Sikh, Sikh friends. I was like, where are they going? Somewhere up the line, we have to ask the question. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. If I'm going to heaven, how am I, my neighbors going to hell? So it, it doesn't make any sense. At one time, a child who is educated will ask these questions. And that was Jesus's journey. The small village of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was a was close to a very big Roman town, as I said, called Sephoris, four or six kilometers away. It was a major cosmopolitan center with a lot of work for people from far and wide. Sephoris and her people who worked in the region would have started Jesus on the road of curiosity as to why there were so many non-Jewish people in the world, those who were not chosen by God but still happy and content enough to live a great life. Not much is known of Jesus' youth. However, one of the first stories of Jesus as a 12-13 year old boy was about his parents searching for a little boy Jesus everywhere in the city of Jerusalem. Not finding him anywhere, the family had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate um, the family had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Hebrew feast of the Passover. Perhaps also celebrate the Bar Mitzvah of Jesus. However, he disappears and his parents search for him all over the place. There finally, they find him in the temple of Jerusalem, having a dialogue with much older rabbis of the temple of Jerusalem. What he was saying, no one knows. We, however, told a story to symbolize the advent of the young boy Messiah, a way of reinforcing our belief that he was a son of God. We are told, see how intelligent he was when he was young. It is proof that he was a son of God. Uh, for many people who are not aware of biblical history, ancient Arabs, Hebrews, and Bedouins alike, were all matriarchal and matrilineal families. The women of the tribe and clans are the ones who are in charge of education, transmission of knowledge, and taking care of, of tribes' re religious and local activities. The duty of transmitting the customs, traditions, and marriages and divorces was the job of women. Every child, male or female, was taught to read and write in the sand of the Arabian desert by women of the tribe. The men were in charge of commerce, the caravan trade, and religious duties. When Judaism uh, or Hebrew ideology came, became an ideology, the men were in charge of religious laws and courts too. When the Bedouin child was eight years old, the male child would be sent with his father to learn the caravan trade routes. And the girl child would learn the chores of the home, the clan, and to one day take it over. It was basic for all tribes, uh, clans, and nomadic urbanites alike. By the age of eight, now literate, 
they would be taught the scriptures of the ancients as a child would read. Discussing and questioning was part of religious education. The art of debate is standard practice in Jewish history from the very beginning of the organized kingdom of Israel. A fact, in fact, arguing and debating is, is considered a Jewish national sport. And this I got from JewishLearning.com. Uh, Makolet, differences of opinion. Leshem Shamahim, um, for the sake of heaven. Hence, when Jesus went to Jerusalem with his parents for the Feast of Passover, it was no big deal that he was debating with the rabbis of the time of the Temple Mount, an adolescent trying to show the older generation that he was coming of age. He was mature enough to have the say along journey of life, debate with the finest and change, and change the status quo for the better. The debates with the priestly class and the elders of his time would have definitely empowered a young adolescent Jesus to rebel against the orthodoxy to prove they were wrong. Orthodoxy is all about maintaining the laws of Moses so that the children of Israel would go forth and form the nations of the world and deliver the world from evil. However, Judea itself was occupied by the Romans. The land was a mess, corruption, deceit, people weren't happy, there was poverty, illness. Try telling that to an adolescent that was the image that, that this was his image of the chosen people and the Holy Land. In order to prove them wrong, the rebel inside the adolescent Jesus would have not hesitated. But we have no idea what he did after this time. The Bible is silent and there is no other text that talks about the life of Jesus from 12 to 30 years old. Who is hiding what and why? There are endless amounts of theories of the subject. Everyone has chipped in. Here is my version. The mission of every Jewish adult is to find the 12 lost tribes of Israel and bring them back to the land of the ancestors. Uh, Aliyah, as it's called in the modern, word, uh, modern world, once they're all back, then only will the Messiah come back to Israel and deliver his people. The Lord promised that his covenant people would someday be gathered. I will gather the remnants of my flock from all countries whither I have driven them, says Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 3 in the Old Testament. It is very likely that Jesus grew up, as he grew up, he traveled to lands in search of the descendants of the lost tribes. The rebel that he became from challenging the establishment would have driven him to travel to Africa, Europe, and a lot of South Asia to look for the lost tribes who would have found a new home, as well as those who were assimilated into their cultures and welcomed their refugees. This concept of finding lost tribes is also a metaphor for people to understand the cycles of life, a science practiced by their ancestors, something which, was scientific, which every scientific book will teach in one format or the other. Your duty is to understand what transpired in the previous cycles, Learn from every junction. In Judaism, although science is not used, finding the lost tribes is taken seriously. And most Jews believe that when all the descendants of the lost tribes resemble in the Holy Land, and the Messiah will then come again and to redeem the Jewish nation. So going to search for the 12 lost tribes in Israel in all directions is a very big possibility.
When Jesus comes back to the, to, to the scene in Jerusalem, he's empowered with new ideas, theories, and according to the New Testament, the start of his mission until his death in 30, at 33 years of age. Jesus could have gone to gather information and gain knowledge through scholarship from various ancient centers of knowledge, Alexandria with its library, Setesfion, ancient Baghdad, the University of Tekshila, the University of Nalanda, maybe Rome or ancient Greek centers of learning in Europe. He seems like a young lad whose knowledge and dialogue as his main components to challenge the status quo and not a physical dialogue. Thus the centers of knowledge in the vicinity would have been of great importance for him to gain new ideas and learn. New ideas to challenge the debate and the old ideas of the rabbis, and find the descendants of the lost tribes strewn all over the Indian continent, Africa, Middle East, and Europe. Jesus does not seem to be a person who uses physical violence to confront another, um, to conf but uses the same old Bedouin way of life to sit around the fire, among other travelers, exchange and debate information to empower himself. What would have struck the young adult Jesus was a simple fact. All the lands and empires surrounding him were more advanced than the Judeans himself, themselves. So how were the Hebrews the chosen one? The Persians, the Romans, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Saldations were ahead. Even the Finnish team, who we call Palestinians today, um, there was no, they were not Islamic, but Finnish team across, coming from across the uh, Aegean Sea or much more advanced civilization uh, than the Israelites. Questions and questions and questions and no answers. Something was not right. Jesus was not going to let the Hebrew elite get away, stifling the citizens of Judea. Submission and subjugation in the name of the divine, who seemed to be taken on rent just to empower their pockets and ignorance. Two thousand years later, Look at the Haredim, they are still the same. All this during the age, uh, until the age of 30, when he seems to at least considered, uh, according to what the church tells us, what his mission. He seems to have found the answers in part, at least, which came from the reconnection of his heritage, thus bringing him inner peace. There's not much in the New Testament where he says he gets violent. The peace on the outside would come only with the peace on the inside. Something which would mean he was on his way to achieving his goal. Or was it something that triggered him to start his mission vocally, 30 years of age? John the Baptist was beheaded two years earlier. Did Jesus take up the reins after John? While getting to know the context of Judea around the time of the mission of Jesus, I realized that there was a lot of upheaval. Surely there were many dissidents during this time. Many Judean citizens would have revolted against the Judean Sanhedrin and the Roman Empire, the Sanhedrin being their parliament. However, only Jesus' name was stuck in history. Why? The question always arises. Why was Jesus given such a harsh punishment for being just a rebel? He had, stolen, he had not stolen anything, nor killed anyone. Reading the Bible again at around 35 years of age, I realized one very important story that not many people talked about. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about his mission of reinforcing the laws of Moses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Basically, when Jesus was talking about the laws of the prophets, he was talking about the laws of Moses and the traditions of ancient Hebrews. His mission was not that of starting a new religion, but to re-establish the laws of Moses. The knowledge of the prophets, something which would bring them peace and unity and stop turbulence. Looking under the label to remove the dirt from underneath. Re-understanding the meaning of Moses' wisdom, a sort of reformation of the ancient beliefs and signs of his Hebrew ancestors. It would make them understand that all tribes are descendants of the same brothers. That's one family. So why are people treated as pure and impure if they're all brothers? If they could recall from part of their heritage, go back in history and have that dialogue, gain the knowledge that would be able to cross over from violence to peace at every junction. The Semitic word for that, for that was Hebrew, something that they were doing even today. History repeats itself. My dear friends, that, my dear friends, was a real problem. All in all, Jesus would have surely found out some of the lost tribes of Israel. That his mission would be about empowering the people of Galilee and surrounding provinces he acquired from his journey of introspection. He would have found out that the descendants of the original tribes, the errors, the corruption, the misinterpretation of the text of Moses, a mission that said to them, go find your heritage and have that dialogue with yourself. With the ancient tribes, learn the lessons from the past and make the, every junction into an intellectual laboratory. Adjust with every situation you will rise above the status quo. Do not remain silent. It would not have sat down very well with the rabbinical authority because knowledge and peace also meant that the citizens of the time would not let anyone manipulate and micromanage the congregations. Something very similar to what happens today. It also meant that these theological authorities would not be getting their taxes. He was considered by the Roman authorities as a troublemaker, king of the Galilean rebels. After being baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus spends 40 days and nights in the desert, contemplating his journey and destiny of God. He's tempted by Satan, so says the Bible, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. He avoids the temptations and begins his mission, preaching all over Galilee. He accuses the money changers of making his father's house a vile den. He goes on to perform miracles, heal the sick, and says he is come to spread the word of his father. He makes friends with people he thinks will carry his mission in his absence. These friends become his disciples. But as word spreads of this rebel, um, some say he is the Messiah. The establishment feels threatened. He himself does not give himself a title of anointed one. Three and a half years into his mission, and he is apprehended by the establishment in the Roman-occupied province of Judea on his last trip to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. The crowds love him, and this day is celebrated as Palm Sunday for Christians all over the world. However, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and tried by the high priest of the temple. The Sanhedrin was an ancient Israelite code system. The great Sanhedrin was a supreme religious body in the land of Israel during the time of the temple, uh, during the time the temple stood, stood. 
There were also uh, smaller religious Sanhedrins in every town in the land of Israel, as well as civil, political, democratic um, bodies. Um, the high priest of Jerusalem at that time was called Joseph ben Caipias. Um, he had been the high priest for 18 years. He made a strong bond with the Roman political power above him and made sure to maintain the alliance with the Romans to maintain religious law and order. The Romans were always anxious to maintain law and order while suppressing a civil, civilian revolt. No commerce and trade can take place if there is a revolution. Economic confidence in this region comes from maintaining peace and stability. So in order to keep their boss happy, the Sanhedrin, who was micromanaged by the uh, who micromanaged the Israelites below made sure to keep their eyes open for the first sign of trouble and quash the issue at source. Any type of trial or kangaroo court was accepted as long as peace was maintained. The Sanhedrin did not care about dissidents here and there. Small groups of people revolt or, or leave history uh, or even leave as history has shown them. They would just keep bringing more children into the world and fill up the void. So they didn't mind if people revolted, little revolts, people, or even even if people left the fold, as history goes on. But they would just keep bringing more children to the world. However, if the rhetoric and ideology was questioned, their camouflage for power would go. Their power itself was eventually eroded. What? They did want what, what they did not want was precisely the real knowledge of Moses and the real wisdom to be known. Therefore, they made it their duty to get rid of Jesus. So it's same thing that is done today. The church does not want the real story of church of Jesus to be known, and they will they will silence any dissident. Islam also doesn't the same. They don't care if some people leave, but no one should challenge the ideology because if the ideology go, goes, then the uh, screen for power will go, so they cannot challenge the ideology. They put all the blame on Muslims and say, oh, well, the Muslims are bad, but the ideology is perfect. Same thing that the Hebrews did in those days. You can have dissidents, your people can leave, but you cannot challenge the ideology. So this is where supremacy starts, when you need a camouflage to... to to screen your political power, you use an ideology, you say it's from God, you say it's perfect, you say no one can challenge it, and here we go. All the gullibles will believe in it. The feast was Passover, and Hebrews came in from all over the Roman provinces to celebrate the Temple of Jerusalem. Their population swelling to about 2.5 million, as some estimates. Capius, uh, the high priest was anxious not to let any um, Capius the high priest um, was anxious not to let any situation get out of hand and would have heard about the rebel called Jesus of Nazareth prior to the Passover feast if Jesus was making trouble for the Sanhedrin if the public adored him and if he challenged the authority of the religious and political establishment by refusing to submit to them things could have gotten out of hand quickly there were 6,000 Roman soldiers in the area. Once Jesus was apprehended, he was tried on some religious charge leading to a death penalty. Jesus was previously challenged, also previously challenged the income of Hebrew theologians. The Hebrew priest charged the smallest of religious functions and duties. 
for our ritual purification in a mikveh before entering the temple of Jerusalem, especially on the peace, feast of Passover, to forgive of to, to forgiveness of sins. The temple priests were a money-making racket, and Jesus was furious. So were the crowds who were agitated with the religious establishment. Like I like to say, behind every religious decision is a business decision. Jesus was of the idea that this elaborate money-making ritual purifications in the mikveh that cost poor women their hard-earned money had nothing to do with God, but more with the greedy establishment below. He believed, like, Je like Moses, that the kingdom of God was available to everyone irre irrelevant of the money they made. When Jesus rode to, into Jerusalem on a donkey and, and accused the merchants of making their father's temple a den of thieves, this aroused the authority. One word to the people saying that they were being ripped off would have led to a serious revolt, costing Capius his job. This set off a chain of events, my dear friends, which would lead to the trial and the uh, murder of Jesus Christ. So it is important to understand this part, how it bubbled and, and, and spiraled out of control. And we get the uh, religion uh, of Christianity from this event. The Bible says Matthew the Apostle mentions that Cephas, the chief priest, decided how Jesus had to be killed. A kangaroo coat is what transpired next, which led to scholars having dismissed an unfair as an unfair event, something uh, like what happens now in uh, a lot of countries. A quick number to silence Jesus, just as the British code tried to do with uh, a lot of dissidents to its um, to its empires, and they're even still doing today to anyone who who, who speak who who is chastised, who goes against them, and they chastise any of any, of, any people who are revolting against the establishment as hate speech, um, hate speech, Islamophobia, same thing. Uh, so the Kafias, the chief priest, had a kangaroo coat and decided how Jesus was going to be killed, and that was how it was going to, to be. So the labels have changed, but the mentality has not. Um, so Jesus' trial was at a night on a feast day, Jewish trials had to take place during the day and never on a feast day. It took place in Caphias' house. It should have been conducted in the council chamber. Caphias tried to get Jesus to commit blasphemy, but he was not successful. He asked Jesus if he was the son of God, the Messiah, and Jesus answers in the affirmative. Caphias accuses him of blasphemy and the rest of the court agrees to accuse him of the same while agreeing to charge him with a death sentence. However, the same came up with a couple of problems. The Judeans cannot execute citizens, and, and blasphemy was not a crime under the Roman law. The Sanhedrin judged accused lawbreakers, but could not initiate arrest. This was a religious issue, not an administrative one, because remember, the area, the Roman province of, Jude uh, of Judea, was controlled, administered by the Romans, the religious affairs by the Hebrew Sanhedrin. So Calpheus accused Jesus of sedition against the Roman state, accusing Jesus of calling himself as the king of Jews. This was a crime against Rome. And thus, the Roman authorities were obligated to, to deal with the issues. Although the Roman governor thought Jesus was innocent, he was 
able to perform a clemency act on the day of Passover, meaning releasing one prisoner. The crowd asked for Barabbas. Pilate declared him innocent, but still sentenced him to be crucified. He then washed his hands in a symbolic gesture. Jesus is crucified and would later rise from the dead, according to the scriptures, three days later. Some say Jesus seems to know the faith that awaits him, where he challenges the establishment, but he maintained his course. He knew at any time of challenge and dis dissent would bring upon him capital punishment. Was it a smart move? What else is he trying to say? Why, why did the violent death justify itself to a point? One thing sure, Jesus' journey was against a corrupt establishment who was being subjugative and ripping off the people below. Something we do even today. So we're going to stop this chapter over here. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with some more history of Christianity. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you've taken a lot of notes. And don't hesitate to come back. And we'll be back as soon as possible. Thank you and have a great day.